Get your Bibles out, if you will. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 32. I appreciate Jeff's reading of the text that I selected tonight. In studying the session of Christ, I was just overwhelmed at how many times it is, it is mentioned in Scripture, and particularly in the teaching of the apostles, the preaching of the apostles, the sermons of Acts by Peter and Paul include the teaching of the session of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, this topic is a very large topic, and there's no way I can touch all the bases tonight. But I hope to, to bring some help in understanding the session of Christ, what it is, and secondly, how it applies to us, even as we sit here tonight In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter, in his sermon, which he, of course, was inspired by the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to preach, much of this sermon is based upon the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that larger term, exaltation, includes his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and his coming to judge the living and the dead. The Apostles' Creed has all those things in it, and, and Peter's sermon actually was an exposition and proclamation of that exaltation of Christ. This was an evangelistic sermon, but he, he centers on who Christ is, what he has done and what he is doing and shall do. In verse 32, Peter said, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we're all witnesses. There's the resurrection. Therefore, having been exalted, that's the ascension into heaven, having been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. That's the session of Christ, the sitting rule of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, This Jesus is fully God and fully man. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, this is his, his final statement initially of the message, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God the Father has made him the Son, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the session of Christ. This is the highest point of his message, and this is what affected the hearers so that they would cry out to Peter and the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Because the fact and the exposition of the session of Christ so overwhelmed them that he's both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom they crucified, that they knew that they would be brought to account before him, that they had done something awful, that they had killed the King of Glory named Jesus and that they would be brought to account. Such 
preaching and exaltation of the person and work of Christ is that gospel preaching that the Holy Spirit uses to bring sinners to repentance and faith in this risen, exalted, and glorious Lord who rules over all things and will bring all to account. So the resurrection and ascension and reigning session of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand as the King of Kings is at the heart of the session of Christ. In the Old Testament and in the culture of those days, in the Old Testament and even in the days of our Lord, it was known that a king sits to exert his authority and rule. Everybody else stands in his presence. That is a seat of respect. And the rabbis, as they taught, they sat when they taught, as Jesus sat before the disciples when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. And even now, we call our government, or at least Washington, D.C., the seat of our government because sitting down is not humbling oneself, but it is actually taking on the authority and the position of power. And our Lord Jesus Christ is now seated by his Father, and he took that seat at the right hand of his Father to exert all of the power and authority to bring to pass the building of his kingdom as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And part of that work as King of kings and Lord of lords includes that he is still the prophet of our confession. He is still the priest of our intercession. And as a result, we have a complete and perfect Savior for the worst of sinners in this room and in this world. I'm so thankful, he said, I did not come to bring the righteous but sinners to repentance. And even from that throne, Paul says in Philippians, he grants repentance to men. So we have in the session of Christ what I believe is the heart of the whole Bible. Because after the fall of Adam and the violation of God's law in his heart and the commandment that God gave to him, we immediately have the promise that was given to Satan by God that Eve would bear a son, a seed. And that seed one day would crush Satan upon the head and destroy him and his seed. He would have to be a man because by a man came sin. He would have to be not only a man, but a better man than Adam, who sinned against the Lord, even in his state of innocency. He would have to be impeccable in his character and without sin, and without the possibility of sinning by his very being and nature. And he would have to make atonement for the sins that have been brought into this world by Adam's headship and the sins of our nature that we have committed. And he would have to be not only perfect and impeccable and sinless, but he would have to be more than a man. 
He would have to be the incarnate Son of God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem to fulfill that precious promise that still moves our hearts when we read it. And all through the Old Testament, it was about Him. All of the covenants are the covenants of the promise, the promise made by God in Genesis 3.15. From that point, the law of God was preached to condemn the sinners. But the prospect and promise of grace in a man to come, a seed of the woman, was also preached. And so all the covenants of the promise served that promise and brought forth the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, and born in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he took into his office, he became our prophet, priest, and king, as we heard today, to bring many sons to glory, a multitude no man can number. And so this, this, um, this evening, I want to try to bring some understanding of that session of Christ. Herman Witsius said, Christ sitting at the right hand of God is that supreme and peculiar glory, both in his person and in his kingly office, which after his ascension into heaven was conferred on him by the Father, and most justly taken possession of by himself. For the glory of God the Father and for the perfect salvation of the church, not the world, the church. All that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ, all the the magnificent power, the majesty of his person, all things that he rules, as we will see, as King of kings and Lord of lords, ultimately is and was for the church. And that is a great encouragement to us as we, as we sit here tonight. And I believe there are many blessings that come out of his enthronement, his session, that should encourage our hearts and give thanks for what he has done what he is doing and shall do. For he shall reign until every one of his enemies shall be a footstool for his feet. We do not go forth without hope, without comfort, without assurance. We go forth at the command of our Lord Jesus Christ in session. Till he comes. Now, so how, how does the Lord Jesus Christ sit in session and reign in these three offices? Well, first, he reigns over all things as our prophet. Now, you may be thinking, well, he has already given his words on earth, to which nothing is to be added afterward or taken away. And you would be right. He has given his words on earth. However, it is during his session, his reign, his exaltation, that he sent his spirit not only to save sinners, but to inspire Matthew and John and Luke and Peter and Jude 
to write down the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to write down his words and their inspired words so that he, though gone, is still speaking. Gone from our presence, he is still speaking. And he promised those disciples in John 14 before he left, in John 14, 25 and 6, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And that's so important because the Great Commission is more than just going and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, more than even baptizing disciples. It is also teaching them to do all, Jesus said, that I commanded you. The church is to be a teaching church as well as a going church and a worshiping church. That the task of the apostles that the Lord gave to them and they passed on to those pastors and teachers whom God raises up for his people. That task was to teach and to teach the words of Christ. And though he is now not among us and he has through his apostles, given us the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The scripture that we read, as Jeff so beautifully read this evening, every word comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. He is still our prophet. We're still called to listen. And we have his word before us, knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so he calls forth men like you and me that deserve hell. He sets us apart with his grace and opens our hearts to respond to the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be more than enough that we could live on the rest of our lives. But then he calls pastors and elders, to be set apart, to be able to teach God's Word, His Word, that the people of God may be built up and that sinners may be brought to Christ. So every time we open the Word of God, it's a miracle. Every time we read each word, it's a wonder of inspiration And we should handle it holily as we read it and explain it to the people. And we should teach our people that when we read God's Word, when they read God's Word at home, they are hearing the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ in session, who is our prophet, has brought us truth, and now we live because of Him. And just a note, because it's a hobby horse of mine, (laughs) When we read the scripture in worship, without being theatrical, we ought to read it with joy and soberness, with proper inflection, 
and at the proper rate so that our people can take in each and every inspired word. For we are in the presence of the one who is in session and who still sends the Holy Spirit to illumine the minds of hearers with the truth that that word is. To bring them to God or to build them up in the faith, this respect for the word of God must stand as a characteristic of our congregations. And even more than that, as our prophet, he has given more than his words. He continues to preach his word to saints and sinners today. How you ask, not by new revelations of new prophets, anybody that gets some kind of thought that passes through their head and said, that's God speaking to me and I must speak it to others. No, he gives gifts to men having ascended on high. And some of those gifts are not only apostles and prophets who are gone from us and evangelists, but pastors and teachers. They are gifts to Christ's church, which the church is to recognize in their character and abilities and gifts and set them apart for the privilege of preaching Christ to men. And the amazing thing is that it is such a high calling and such an important one that 2 Corinthians 5.18 says this, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's a sobering thing. It concerns the eternal souls of condemned men and women and children. And he's committed to us, apostles, yes, but also those pastors and teachers who've received the word of God, the apostolic truth. He's given us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God was making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is amazing. It doesn't mean that every word we teach and preach is inspired of God and holy. It does mean that God has set men apart like us to carry his word to the people. And apply it to their lives. And when we are faithful in that task, it is though Christ himself is preaching to the people through those he has set apart to read and proclaim his word. That is, none of us are worthy of that. There's, there's nothing in any of us, in and of ourselves, that's worth loving ourselves about or thinking that we are something when we're nothing. What do you have that you did not receive, said Paul to the Corinthians? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's no room for pride and arrogance and self-importance and self-righteousness in the pastoral ministry. We are but servants of the King of Kings, carrying out His will to proclaim His word to the nations.
And Paul even told Timothy that part of his task as a young pastor, or perhaps middle-aged by that time in Ephesus, that he was to find faithful men and to find those faithful men and teach them all that Paul had taught him, he said. The things you've heard from me. The sound doctrine, the, the teaching, the stoikoi, the line-by-line truth, the treasure of the inspired word of God, the apostolic truth, to find men and deposit that in them and teach the, them so that they may teach, be able to teach others. And so the apostolic truth moves from apostles to the local church and its pastors and elders to teach the people of God and carries on until he comes. But it's Christ's word, and we are ambassadors for Christ. The second office of our Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Hebrews 5 and 6 reads, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The father addresses his divine son. Just as he says also in another passage, the father says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The father has set his son in the position of being the great high priest for sinners to enter into his presence safely and justly. That is amazing. Greater than the order of Aaron in the temple worship, our great high priest is God the Son incarnate as a man, fully God and fully man in one person who is a priest forever for all who would come to God by him. And even further, the wonder is that this great high priest who has passed through the heavens into that mysterious and glorious tabernacle above is sitting at the right hand of God the Father as he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. And he's right next to him as he turns to his father. In our mind, this idea of sitting upon a throne and at the right hand of power and authority is easy to see in the kings of the earth and their their earthly uh, throne rooms. But here in heaven, where the father has not a body like men, the incarnate son of God sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty to plead our case with his blood and righteousness on our behalf, with the eternal love that was set upon us before times eternal. He sits at the Father's right hand. He doesn't have to even get up and come over to him. He just leans over and says, Father, this is my sheep. You gave them to me. I died for them and I love them. And they're praying. 
They're praying to you, Father, in my name. And most of the time, they don't know what they're talking about when they pray. (laughs) But I do. And I'm asking you, Father, to answer their request in the best way possible by your infinite wisdom and perfect uh, righteousness so that the answer they receive is exactly the perfect will that you planned for them before the world began. And if it's not what they understand or desire, Father, I will take care of that because I will teach them in the answer how to trust the living God. And how can they argue with me who loved them and gave himself up for them? It's a beautiful scene in heaven. And we we have it in earthly pictures in many ways. But he is our great high priest. Therefore, brethren, Hebrews 10, 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, think of that. Entering into the holy place of God's dwelling, his throne room in heaven, since we have confidence, assurance to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since it's a fact, we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is in session, he who is our prophet, and now our priest, for he who promised is faithful. We have every reason to believe That grace is so great that God has designed through his dear son the only and perfect way for sinners like us to be covered with his righteousness and commune with God in prayer. He is a great high priest. And our hearts should be drawn to praise with these privileges he has accomplished By his work, we should be drawn to thanksgiving. What I was trying to say earlier when we were talking about Philippians 2 is that if we're rejoicing in the Lord always because of his love and grace and salvation, his atonement, his promises, many and precious, to bring us to his side in an eternal place forever and ever, why should we? Grieve or worry or be sad that the prayer as we prayed it was not answered as we prayed it. For we have him. We have the king of kings. We have the lamb of God who laid down his life for us, who has so invested his person and work in our salvation and our good that we have no right to question how he answers our prayers in the providences that we encounter. Because we trust him. And he's trustworthy. And third, we, 
our Lord Jesus Christ reigns in his office as King of Kings and and Lord of Lords. In some ways, I think that this divine office should be considered first before the other two. But since the confession disagrees with me, I yield. (laughs) For it actually teaches that the order of Christ's offices are necessary to be maintained in that order to understand the fullness of his salvation for us. I yield. But Christ, in his exaltation by the Father, is pronounced King of kings and Lord of lords. God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The concluding words of Peter's sermon takes us to the session of Christ and his exaltation and power. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. He must reign. He is reigning and he shall reign to complete all the eternal plans between the Father and the Son. In that covenant of grace and redemption before the foundation of the world. He must reign as king. All that he accomplished as our prophet and priest on earth was rewarded by the Father by enthroning him as the sovereign of the universe in his mediatorial kingdom. He was the king of creation Clearly in the scriptures, the father appointed his son, the regent king of creation. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. All things that were made were made through him and by him. All things are in him and for him and without him nothing has been made. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He has always been the king of glory. But... When he accomplished his work as the word of God on earth, calling men to redemption and repentance toward God, when he himself lived the life Adam did not and fulfilled the law and magnified it and made it glorious, when he went to the cross and bore our sins in his body upon the cross, upon the tree, He accomplished our salvation there, to which the Father rewarded him with an exaltation that begins with the resurrection from the dead and all the glories that we see there, and the ascension on high as if we were the apostles and 
The others standing there, perhaps 500 brethren at that time, were not sure. As they saw him lifted up from earth into the cloud, which perhaps was the, the cloud of God the Father's presence receiving him, we don't know. As we see him exalted and ascended, and the scripture tells us now glorified, we see one who is worthy to sit as the King of kings and Lord of lords, to carry out that eternal plan to bring many sons to glory. The Lord Jesus Christ is beautiful in his holiness. He's wondrous in his kindness and mercy to sinners. He's powerful in his enduring the cross, despising the shame. And he is our King whose whole life now is given to bless sinners as the children of God. He is worthy of worship, of submission and obedience. But now he is reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords to carry out every warning in Scripture to fulfill every promise given in Scripture, to make sure that every prophecy of the things yet to come come exactly as God, as the Holy Spirit predicted in the prophets of old, and to carry out His application as our great high priest Who has the words fully to understand the glory and majesty of such a person in such a glorious work? We cannot see him. If we were there, we could have seen him on earth. We do not see him now. and We cannot see him in this glorious exaltation. We have to but by faith in the truth of his resurrection from the dead, that all things are true, that he said and promised to do, that he is now doing them amidst the angels of, and the, their praise, amidst the saints that have gone on before us and their joy at being in his presence forever. He is doing what he promised. He's carrying out the salvation of sinners like you and me that he may bring you to his side and enjoy the glories of heaven forever in his presence to see him face to face. We try to understand the glory of that. It's it's very difficult because there's nothing in our experience or on earth or creation that can compare to the wonder and the shining glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something like what John saw in John 1 when Christ appeared to him and his face was as the sun shining in his strength. So he fell down before him, and the Lord said, Be not afraid. Perhaps one thing that can help us to try to understand the magnitude of his glory is to look within our life and hearts and see the level of the depravity of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts as well as our actions and words. That's something we can see, and even then we do not see it fully, but those who understand 
that it is all of grace, can begin to have a glimpse of the glories that rest upon the brow of the one who loved them and gave himself up for them because he desired to bless them and have them at his side. And one day sitting upon his throne, words fail. So what does this glorious session of our Lord Jesus Christ mean to us tonight and in the future to come? Well, there are three particular applications I want to bring. And the first one is, if you are here tonight, and it's very possible that someone could be here tonight still an unbeliever or a false believer, hiding it well. Here is what the session of Christ means. He is risen, ascended, and reigning over all things in your life today. Every heartbeat is in his hand. Every breath comes at his privilege and will. And every twinge of conscience wherein you feel the work of God's moral law in your heart Your conscience, either excusing or defending yourself, is because the Lord Jesus Christ has sent forth His Spirit to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. If you ignore that and harden your heart even more, you stand greater condemned. For the King of glory still calls sinners like you to Himself. Come unto me, he said, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And for our understanding, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Come, he said. If you ignore him and his session... There will be a day, a moment, when you are suddenly caught in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory with his angels for all the universe to see. You will suddenly be caught without a Savior, but one who is so glorious that he is faithful both in his salvation and in his judgment. And books will be opened. And you will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords who gave his life to save sinners. And hear his words of eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Can you not see that he was raised in history by miracle? It is not a rational thing, but he reversed the curse of death that Adam brought upon us all. He pushed back and reversed the condemnation and God's wrath against all who call upon his name for mercy. Can you not see that? That he is such a one that is so good 
being fully God and fully man in one person, that he would humble himself to the point of, of humiliation to bear the wrath of God for sinners like you. Why should you not be one for whom he came except your heart is hardened? Because of his session, you should be crying out. As the Jews did on Pentecost, brethren, what shall we do? And the answer is repent to the King of glory. Bow yourself before him and be baptized unto the forgiveness of your sins. And he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. All the many and precious promises that God has ever had for any sinner are there before you to take by faith and to be restored to the Lord who loves his own and brings them to his side. Come to your prophet, priest, and king who rejoices when he brings one from the wilderness upon his shoulders. And all the angels sing as they hear him say, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. That's our king. That's the one in session. That's the one to whom you must run by faith and take hold of him for your own benefit and salvation. Secondly, if you're a Christian here, the session of Christ is a wondrous thing to meditate on, to believe, and to embrace as true for every one of his sheep. Every one of us in Christ have been united with him. We are in union with him by the indwelling of his spirit, whereby he comes to our hearts and regenerates us and raises us from the spiritual death that we're in and opens our eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He has done so much. We are united with him, and he doesn't leave or forsake us. And I just wish to say that there are times when communion with Christ has been taught in the past in such a way that whether Reformed or Arminian, that when we sin, he leaves us because he cannot stand to fellowship with sin. Well, I would say that his first communion with us, whereby he unites himself to us, is to unite to sinners that they may become saints of God. And that to think that he would leave us because of a sin, leave us physically even, or the Spirit depart from us, is against all the many and precious promises that he has given. I will be with you all the days, even to the end of the age. How is it that Christ would break off his union with us in the fact that we have sinned again as a believer? No, he is in session. And his spirit is in union with us.
And if we are in him, we are his own. And even if we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is the faithfulness of Christ that precedes holiness and sanctification. Though we must be faithful to him, the truth is every single one of our thoughts and words and deeds as a Christian still has the taint of sin upon them, and none are perfect. And we dwell with the Savior and walk by faith with him and one who has shed his blood, not for only our sins of the past, but of the present and of the future, and has pledged himself to us in his blood, and calls us to believe that, and therefore to love him and keep his commandments. Living by faith as a Christian means believing all that God has promised to sinners and that these things are yours by faith alone, not by your own righteousness or Christian righteousness, and giving yourself to love this exalted high priest and king and keep his commandments. Romans 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him, how will he not also with him freely give all things, give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Dr. Lloyd-Jones told believers this strange statement that I had to wrestle with in reading him sometimes. Believe who you are. And somehow that just doesn't sound right, considering all the stuff that's out there today. But what he meant is, believe what God has promised and given to every believer so that you will not lose heart and yield to sin. As John said, and this is beautiful, we have come to know and have believed the love of God has for us. You may believe that you're unlovable, and in fact, you probably are. But the love of God is pure and justly given. And we ought to take by faith all the many and precious promises of Scripture, which in Christ Jesus are yes and amen, and say, I believe those because God has said it. I have come to believe and to know the love God has for me. That'll get you through the day. It'll even get you through your failures. Because there is such a love of God that he would spare not his only begotten son to bring sinners to glory and joy.
If you're here as a pastor elder tonight, you know as a Christian that you have nothing to boast about or to fall in love with yourself about, if you're honest. Everything you know, everything you believe, every opportunity to preach and teach and humbly serve Christ's sheep is as much a sovereign gift of His undeserved goodness and grace as your own soul's salvation by grace. It is Christ's session by grace which has set you apart for His glory and given you the opportunity to serve. Paul understood this and brought forth a humility that is so admirable. 2 Corinthians 4 has become so important to me to make me think straight. 2 Corinthians 4.12 says, So death works in us, and Paul was speaking of himself and those who preach the gospel. Death works in us, <clears throat> but life in you. And here's his attitude as a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. All things are for your sakes, not my sake. All things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about others. And the calling to preach the gospel to the world, to serve Christ's sheep in the church, is a call to death. Death to self. Death to pride. Death to selfishness. Death to stubbornness and arrogance. Death to pride. For who can have an ounce of pride in the presence of the King of glory who loved you and gave himself up for you? One other thing for pastors and churches in application of the session of Christ is that our Lord promised on earth, while he was on earth, that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'm sure all of us here at one time or the other have looked at our situation at our church or the trying to start a church or the, the troubles in the church, maybe even the troubles in an association, and they, they have said, what is going to happen? It doesn't seem like this is for good. It doesn't seem like Christ is building his church. But therein is the problem. 
He has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he is bringing in every sinful soul that was chosen before times eternal every single day at the right place, the right time, with the right means that he has provided for them. And he's doing the same with every church. It may not look like it at times. But there's a wonderful scene in Revelation chapter 1. Amidst all the glory of the sitting authority of our Lord, he stands to walk among the imperfect golden lampstands of Asia. He gave and applied his word to each one individually as if he were the head of each and every one. Did he not give direct and present attention to each of these churches in his almighty power as fully God and fully man in one person? Cannot he give his full attention to every believer and to every church to build it as he wishes in the grand scheme of things? So that whatever is happening by the providence which he oversees down to the smallest subparticle of whatever the things are now. Is he not carrying out his will in building his church so that everything he planned to accomplish is being accomplished? I believe that. Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? Every pastor and elder needs to believe that. And, and when there's need of repentance in that church, or here's what he says to the churches, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is not about an individual salvation. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ overseeing each and every church, calling each to believe the truth, to practice the truth, and to repent of sin. Behold, he says, he is so gracious. I stand at the door and knock. If any man will come and open the door, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Do you know why this is so encouraging to me? Sorry, I'm going over here. Because these churches, these seven churches in Asia, most of them were a real mess, just like our churches. In fact, I'd rather pastor my church than any of them, pretty much. (laughs) And he has not yet left them. But he does call them to repentance. He does single out their sins and he does discipline those he loves. Each true church with its many problems is still the object of his working for his ends, which may be to build that local body up or to discipline that local body down. 
And he knows what he's doing it because, he, because he's building it his way for the glory of his Father. And it is for the pastors and elders and deacons and people to understand Christ's session so that they will not grow weary and lose heart no matter what happens. Should the worst happen, we have Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction. That's Paul talking. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The session of the Lord Jesus Christ is his faithful exercise of his offices of prophet, priest, and king at all times, saving sinners, sanctifying saints, and building his church and disciplining them causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And he's doing it every day for every one of his own and every one of his true churches. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Because he is faithful. Let us pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, to understand the incredible work that you are doing in your session right now and will continue to do until you come and bring all things to completion and deliver up the kingdom into the, into the hands of your God and Father so that he will receive all the glory. How humble you are, how loving you are, how trustworthy you are. And we ask that you would help our hearts to believe what the Scripture says about your present word, your present intercession for us, and your present kingship over all creation for the church. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight until you come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.